Well, good morning. Let's, let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you that uh, not only do we need thee every hour, but that you are here to be with us every hour, every moment of the day. Lord, we pray that you will be with us even now through your Holy Spirit, that you will teach us, that you will open our ears, open our eyes, open our minds and our hearts today to your word. We pray for those who may be lost and ask that you will soften their hearts, that you will penetrate their hearts with your word and save them today. And we pray for those of us who have come and may have known you for many years in a relationship, but Lord, we do need thee every hour. We pray that in this hour that you will feed us, that you will encourage us, that you will build us up, that you will make us into the men and women that you desire us to be. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking before I got started that uh, there are some that have been visiting with us for a while, uh, others maybe just a short period of time that may not understand why every week there seems to be someone different in the pulpit here. I will agree with you that is a little unusual in churches. Typically there's one or two pastors and one main pastor, and he's the one you might see frequently. Bob has had health issues for many years, and uh, over the last couple years we have noticed that he was having a a harder time with uh, maintaining a a regular presence in the pulpit and all the other things that he does throughout the week, which if you would just even had a glimpse at some of the things he's involved in throughout the week, you would wonder how he's lasted this long. But uh, the elders had decided that we needed to try to uh, relieve him physically uh, from some of the responsibility because it was just too much. And so the other elders have all taken on uh, the responsibility of filling the pulpit occasionally. We typically have a series. We preach through the Bible here. We take a book and teach through it from week to week, occasionally taking short breaks and doing mini-series. Right now we're in the book of Matthew and have been for a while. But... Uh, That helps give some consistency to the teaching. Even though a different preacher is preaching, uh, we're preaching about the same text, the same uh, uh, thought line, the same uh, message that is presented in a particular book. So I don't think we lose out on any of that at all. But it does allow Bob to uh, preach a couple times a week, but then have the energy to be able to hopefully uh, accomplish other things. He's one of our main counselors. Uh, He's one of the people that uh, responds to deaths in the family and marriages and other things throughout the week. And not only for this local body, I don't know if you know this or not, but Bob has been here a long time and has been uh, able to influence many in our community through the Christian school, through the Fortuna High School and other ways. And uh, he is frequently called upon even for families that don't attend here when they're having deaths in the family or um, funerals, weddings, that type of thing. 
So he is, uh, he is very busy, even though you don't see him up here every week, because he just can't do that anymore. Maybe someday in the future, but uh, at this point he can't. So that's just kind of a brief explanation for those who uh, may not have been part of the discussions over the last couple of years of what we're doing. We hope you're enjoying having these other men, and I guess I include myself in that, although I try to do this uh, just a few times a year because I'm usually a wreck as I'm preparing for it. I do much better as in the administrative part of the ministry, I think, than this, but uh, uh, we, uh, we think we have a system that seems to be working, and we hope you enjoy that. Pray for us. Not only pray for Bob, but pray for us. Pray for the leaders here in the church. We, we are but men, and uh, we could use your prayers. This morning we'll be continuing in the Gospel of Matthew uh, in the 13th chapter. In the first two years of Jesus' earthly ministry, he had been teaching and preaching to a large group of followers that had come from all over the region of Israel and Judea. He began this ministry, according to Luke 3, at the age of 30. So at the time of chapter 13 of, of Matthew, as uh, the events that are taking place here, he's probably about 32 years of age, and he only has about another year in his earthly ministry before he goes to the cross. The large group, or the multitudes, as the scriptures refer to them, followed Jesus to hear what he had to say. They came to watch the interaction between him and the religious leaders and the elites of the day. I think when you read through some of the Gospels and you see the interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders, um, while it is stern, while he is very um, concerned about it and preaching against it, I think there are people who come who are probably just wanting to see what this interaction is. Uh, maybe they're just wanting to see the religious leaders put in their place. Maybe they're, they are trying to learn too in the sense of hearing this message for the first time about these men who have been leading the nation and this prophet who is tell, condemning them and pointing out uh, that they are teaching falsely and teaching things that is not correct. Uh, that probably was... Shocking some of them, may have been entertaining to some of them, knowing the human nature as we all experience in our lives. Sometimes it's entertainment if you see things like this taking place. So I think that could possibly be going on to some degree. And there are others who came to see who else may be healed by this prophet. Maybe they came with their own illness. Maybe they came because they've been hearing that he has been healing people and they wanted to just see what is going on. Is this true? Is this really taking place? Can he really restore blind, uh, sight to the blind? Can he really make the deaf hear and the lame walk? And they probably came to, to witness that. Many were following him, like I said, I think for entertainment. Others for the hope that maybe God will use this man 
to heal them of their own illness. Maybe they were the one who was suffering that illness or disease. And we think sometimes that having um, illnesses or health problems today um, is hard in the sense of getting around. Maybe if you're confined to a wheelchair or using a walker or something like that and, and you struggle with, with being able to just be mobile throughout the day. Imagine the same conditions two centuries ago. They didn't even have sidewalks, much less ADA accessible sidewalks. They didn't have wheelchairs. Canes were probably a stick that they just held up on. If they weren't carried to places, they didn't get there. So many of these people came looking at Jesus as possibly the last hope for them to be healed. Some were interested to see what other types of miracles he might do. Some came thinking that maybe this was the Messiah that was to come, that the Old Testament scriptures had been prophesying and telling about, that people had been telling them that, hey, this, this man Jesus, he's a prophet. We think he's the Messiah. Some have come to follow him wanting to find out, is this the Messiah? Is this the time that he is supposed to come? But this man, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth, was doing and saying things that just didn't seem to line up with their understanding of who the Messiah was to be and what he was to do when he came. They were expecting the Messiah to come in glory and power and reestablish the throne of David, casting off the oppressive yoke that the Roman Empire had them at this time that this passage was written. They're confused because this Jesus doesn't seem to be acting the way they expected him to, to act if he was really the Messiah. Sadly, the people eventually rejected Jesus as the Messiah. During his earthly ministry, Jesus claimed to be and proved that he is the king, that he is the Messiah that is to come. The Messiah that they awaited, that he was this person. The problem is they didn't fully understand what Jesus was here to do this time. He wasn't here to restore the kingdom of Israel quite yet. That was to come. He was here for another purpose. He was here for another reason. But the people's eyes could not see and their ears could not hear. In fact, we hear at times that it seems like um, a stumbling block, if you would, is put up uh, in front of them when he's in the Crowds and the crowds seem to be getting riled up and excited about him and things he's doing and they're wanting to try to lift him up and start forcing him to take this role that they were seeing as the Messiah. And he had to either disappear from the occasion, he had to uh, do things to kind of deaden that so it didn't happen because the time wasn't right. 
because of their rejection, Jesus pronounced judgment on them. Yet he still offers an invitation to whoever will believe. And this time, and this is one of the, 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 the title that is given to this passage or this um, uh, sermon is responding to Jesus with patience. And I look at it in two ways. One is that we have to look at what Jesus and they needed to look at Jesus with patience because the time for what they were expecting was not yet. It was to come. The same with us. We live through life and we deal with different things such as health issues, loss of family, physical decay of the body, the things that take place, struggles. Life is tough. We understand that. God understands that. Sometimes we wish it would just be easier if he would just come back. Let's be done with this. Let's move on to the next phase. But God knows the best time. And we need to be patient as he is patient with us. Because during this time, during this period of time that God has re- condemned his people, the Israelites, and is waiting, it has been an opportunity for the new covenant to come and be established that includes the opportunity for us, if you're a believer, to be able to be saved from your sins. It was an opportunity for the Gentiles, salvation to reach the Gentiles. So while we may want the time to come quickly, think about those that haven't been saved yet. Because God's not going to allow that day to happen until everyone he plans on saving is saved. So be careful not to fret too much over your own conditions and your own desires. Pray that the God's will will be done. The people following Jesus could not understand the deeper meaning of what he was teaching and preaching to them. Jesus said a lot of things. We just have a, a small portion of the various things that he taught and preached on in his three years earthly ministry. There's, there's much more. But even what is being given to them, they most, most of the time have not understood exactly what he meant, or they misunderstood sometimes what he was saying. However, there's 12 men that we were introduced to a couple chapters ago in Matthew 10. His disciples, the apostles, who have begun to believe on Jesus. You know, even the the disciples had to get to a point where they started understanding and accepting him as being the Messiah. They responded to him. They they heard him. They they recognized him as a as a, a someone that they have, they have never run into before. But there had to be a point where they too started looking at him saying, "Wow, I think this guy is the Messiah. And they had to get to that point. And they were looking to him to teach them, which he does. And most of the rest of of Matthew is, is there for the disciples' benefit and also for us and those who have come after this period of time it was written. 
Beginning with Matthew 13, Jesus changed his teaching method by using parables when he spoke to the crowd. Before he he would share stories or share things, and they still didn't understand him fully. But he occasionally would try to explain things to them a little bit. From this point on in chapter 13, when he starts speaking in parables, he no longer takes the time to explain the meaning of what he is saying to the crowds. Instead, he'll give a parable or, or give his period of time of teaching, and then he would typically withdraw in privacy. And he would take his disciples. And in the privacy with his disciples, he would explain what it is that he was talking about. According to James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, parables are stories from real life or a real life situation from which a moral or spiritual truth is drawn. That's what he's doing. According to the English Standard Study Bible, it says Jesus draws on various common experiences to describe the arrival and activity of the kingdom when he speaks in these parables on this particular chapter that we are looking at. So Jesus began to teach with parables to the crowd, but then he would explain them privately to his disciples. The parables in Matthew 13 are what are called the parables of the kingdom. Jesus is telling his listeners, his disciples, and to us as we read it now, looking back at what took place, about what the kingdom of heaven will be like. He's not speaking of eternal glory in these parables or even the state of happiness in the other world. Instead, he's speaking about the current age. This age that we are in, we call the church age. It's at a time when the church is, is, uh, was founded back uh, right as, at Pentecost, right after Jesus died. And it will last until he returns. It's, it spans that whole period. It will end when Jesus returns for the second time, of which that day is only known by God the Father. The parables reveal some helpful clues to us to understand this age that we live in. So let's um, look at some of these parables. The first parable that B.J. taught on last week teaches of the beginning of the kingdom. Remember, there was four types of soil, if you will, that the seed that was being spread landed on, and only one of those Grew. In fact, in uh, 13 verse 8, it says, Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So there was only one type of soil that produced the harvest that was intended. This is what happens when you go off uh, off your notes. While the church may have been small in number in the beginning, 
there was just a handful of people initially. And then there was a couple of times when several thousand were added. But when you think of the world today and the church today, or what we think of as the church today, um, there's who knows how many people in the church, but they started small. So while the church may have been small in number in the beginning, it has grown throughout the age, and it will continue to grow until Christ returns. The church is made up of everyone who repents of their sins and believes on Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The church was established by Jesus. It's His bride. It is His body. We have the history of the early church detailed to us in the book of Acts. If you've never read that, it's it's worth reading and learning from. This morning we'll be looking at three different parables. The wheat and the tares, or if you will, the wheat and the weeds, the mustard seed, and then one about leaven. That's the uh, three that we will be dealing with. While the disciples listened and wondered at Jesus' words, we have the, the blessing, if you will, of God's scriptures for us and the Holy Spirit. While they were having to learn for the first time what some of this meant, we're able to look back and have the benefit of scriptures to be able to look back and and have a deeper understanding and an understanding of, of what it is that he's talking about and seeing through history that what he has said was going to take place has been taking place. So let's read, starting with the second parable and the explanation that Jesus gives in verse 24 of chapter 13. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no less than gathering the weeds, you you root up the wheat along with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Drop down to uh, verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in the parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he gives an explanation to the disciples about what this parable means. So we get a, a, a very good insight into what he was trying to tell the disciples. Then he left the the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there, was, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. The sower who planted good seed in this story is the Son of Man. This is a name used for the Messiah in both the Old and New Testament. The sower is Jesus. So he plants good seed that he explains in verse 37 is the sons of the kingdom. That's what good seed indicates. You see, only Jesus can give the power in the heart to transform a person. There's no other way to come to Jesus and come to the Father but through Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10.13 says. So this story, and in this story, the sower has to be Jesus. And He identifies Himself as that. The sons of the kingdom in the age that we are in now, is the church. That's who the sons of the kingdom is. And of course, we know that there are women in the kingdom too. It's just the way that they use that, but it's inclusive in the way that it's presented. It means everybody. That includes everyone who has and will confess and repent of their sins and believe on Jesus Christ. So it was from the time that he shared this parable all the people who were saved up until now and all the people who will be saved from here to when he returns. So that's the church age. That's the time we exist in. The field, we are told, is the world. Now this could mean the whole world, as you probably are thinking of, uh, the, the, the earth, all the land mass that people live on in which both good and bad men live and dwell. Or it could mean the church, which is what I uh, believe it refers to. It is speaking about the church. And the reason that that is the case is in verse 41, Jesus says that the angels will weed out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. So this will take place in the church, which we'll explain as we go His enemy came to secretly sow weeds. Now, there is no secrets from God, of course. So it's not like he fooled God and slipped in behind his back and and did this act. God knows. But I think in some ways he's, he's talking about that it's done in a way that even the people who are involved in the story as the story progresses here uh, that they don't even know that these weeds are there yet. The enemy is the devil and the weeds are the son of the evil one. They work for him. They're the ones he has influence over. The weeds in this story are probably a plant called the bearded darnel. I'm not familiar with this plant except for what I've read. 
but it sounds like it's some type of a species of ryegrass that is very similar to what wheat looks like. And in fact, if it's planted with wheat until the wheat uh, uh, fruited and had its its head or whatever the, the wheat produces, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two. They look the same. They they grow in the same way. Um, it would just be hard to, to tell the difference. This plant was very plentiful in Syria and Palestine. One of the other reasons why they think this is probably the plant they're talking about. Jesus and our adversary, Jesus's and our adversary, is the devil, Satan, who we're told prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He plants these weeds among the wheat to try to destroy the crop. His intent is to destroy this crop, to, to have these weeds grow. And I guess when they grow, they, they wrap around and intertwine with the wheat so that it's hard to separate it and, and to pull it out separately. The true church of Christ, as I have said, is all who are truly saved and follow Jesus. But there are many who are in the church and even claim to be a follower of Jesus who are really not true followers. There are people in our church and probably here today And they may tell you that I'm a Christian because, but in reality, that they are not. They're counterfeit Christians. They're here possibly and hopefully because God is working in their lives and bringing them here and He's using our fellowship, He's using the teaching of His Word and His Holy Spirit to to change the person and save them. That's our prayer. But there's other reasons why people may be here. And we're told in this parable that one of the reasons is sinister. Satan is trying to disrupt and destroy and make it inactive, uh, the, the church. He tries to do things to embarrass Christ. What better way to do that than with his own bride. If he can soil the bride, it soils the marriage. So he continues to try to do things. And he uses some of these people to accomplish that work. Other people may be coming because they recall in their childhood, their parents brought them here and there's just some comfort in being involved in going to church or maybe it's just the thing that I've always done so I go there. But they've never reached the point where they have made a decision about who Jesus Christ is in their lives. Never have confessed their sin. Never have repented and believed on Jesus To undermine the, the sons of the devil are trying to undermine the teaching and preaching of Jesus to cause dissension 
to disrupt and try to corrupt the local family of God. Not long ago, I preached about how Jesus, or not Jesus, how uh, Satan will, uh, while he can't possess a Christian, and he can't take away your salvation once you have it, he does work hard at trying to disrupt your relationship with Christ. If he can do things that makes you feel um, weakened or ashamed about your faith, if he can tempt you, which he is a master at doing, in ways that he knows that you're susceptible and more than likely to give in, then he will do that. Because he doesn't necessarily have to take your salvation from you to be effective. He just needs to make you feel like you're not accomplishing anything because you're not. Not spending time in the Word, not spending time in church, not spending time in the things that you know you're supposed to do. And if he does this in the lives of the people, then he'll do it in the local church too. He's great at causing arguments over what color to paint the building or works to soften sin in the lives of the members of the body itself. Is there some way that we can change the way we teach and, and, and deal with sin so that we're not so hard on people? If he can... If he can make churches do that, not to confront sin as it should be, then he wins in some ways because he's watered down the message. Anything that may cause dissension or disturbances among the members is what he seeks to do. The early church had these, these same problems. And if, if the early church had it, then we should expect that it's very possible we will have it also. Maybe not physically here at any given time, but it will come. But there's other churches, and I, I know that it doesn't take much thought to think of maybe a church that you've attended or a church you've been to or a church you've heard about on the news that have lost their way. And you wonder even how they call themselves a church sometimes with the way they they function. We see many churches throughout the world that has lost their first love. And it's become so much like the world that it's hard to tell the difference between the two at times. There's more than likely one or two of these people here. That's why we must, I originally put the word ensure to preach and teach accurately from scriptures, but I changed that several times thinking that this actually needs to be a fight. We need to stand firm at this church and as leaders in this church to ensure and try to reach and preach and and teach the truth of scripture as accurately as we can. And that is a fight. It's a challenge. 
especially if you have someone like Satan working behind the scenes trying to distract from that. So it's something we have to be constantly aware of and preparing for and fighting against. That's why we need to pray for each other. That's why we need to fellowship with each other. That's why we need to serve and minister together. Scripture says that all of us are given gifts, and all of us are given gifts to serve in a local body. And there's reason for that, because you're meeting needs, you're encouraging people, you're serving people, you're helping people. We're carrying out various functions in the church. And we need that, and that helps to protect us and to to keep us strong as a body. When false teaching or false doctrine raises its ugly, deceptive head, it, it has to be addressed. We're very careful about who we allow to teach, or especially who we allow to come and preach from the pulpit. We don't we don't want to allow somebody who will come up here and teach lies. Teach something that's not true. I would hope that you would would hear them and know it's false because of your own relationship with Christ and your knowledge of Scripture. But it should never get to that point where someone is allowed to do that. When sin is found... It has to be addressed. If there's things going on that uh, is is especially habitual sin, it has to be addressed. It has to be confronted in a loving way, but in a way that is to help restore and bring repentance and confession. But then we must trust God to take care of His children. Because I don't think we can ever, according to this passage, completely be rid of false teachers and these types of people in the church. We're told it's not going to happen until the end of time, until Christ comes back. So we need to trust God that he will take care of things. But the ultimate outcome at the age the end of the age is that the weeds will be gathered and burned with fire. The lost, those who do not believe and follow Jesus, including those that I identified as counterfeit Christians, will face eternal judgment and punishment, which we don't want. If these people are here, we want to pray for them. We want to pray that God will save them, that that's the reason they're here. Jesus says this place that they will be is a place that will be of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound like a good place. One interesting point about these people is that they were planted secretly and and they appear as true wheat for a period of time. Darnell cannot be easily identified when planted with wheat because they're so alike until they fruit. You can only tell the difference by their fruit. I think we have an explanation of this in some ways in Galatians 5, 
where it says, starting in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ, Christ has crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in, keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So I think that's the fruit that is, is being told of, is eventually people who may be among us will show themselves by what they do and how they live and their actions. Let's look at the, the other two uh, parables quickly. He put another, this back to verse 31 in chapter 13. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Both of these parables, again, are speaking on the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty evident because he says that right in the first sentence on both of them. The kingdom of heaven is like. what It's about what we can expect to see in the current age we live in. However, as simple as it may be to kind of look at this and maybe uh, come to some kind of conclusions about its meaning, that hasn't always been easy because there's been some considerable disagreements uh, over the years since it was spoken about what exactly it means. Especially since in this case, Jesus doesn't take a time to explain what he meant by it to the disciples like he did with the first and second um, parables in chapter 13. So we must try to understand them using acceptable Bible studying methods. The mustard seed here in this story was the smallest of all agricultural seed in the region. I hear there's actually a smaller seed, but they wouldn't have known of it at the time because it hadn't been found, I guess. But for them, the mustard seed is the smallest seed. The idea of this parable is that the seed is very small, but once it's grown, it can grow to be very tall. In this case, up to 10 to 12 feet. So tall that birds can nest in its branches. But what does this parable tell us about the current age? I've read several of the usual commentators that I use when I study. 
And there were a couple of thoughts, but I, I believe I'm in agreement again with uh, Dr. Boyce that I mentioned earlier, where he explains that both the parables of the mustard seed and leaven, that they go together. You look at them the same in the sense that they're talking about some of the same things. In fact, since they were spoken by Jesus between the parables of the wheat and tares and then his explanation, he kind of put them right in the middle of that. It would be it would be more than likely that you would consider all these parables that's being spoken to be similar and in the same conversation. It's not normal for somebody even today to maybe be speaking on one thing and then you jump to a completely different topic and then you maybe come back again and explain what it is you talked about in the first place and everyone's going, but what about the second story? What, what was that all about? Um, that's not normal. So we can apply some of the same thoughts as we study this. They belong together and should be understood in relation to the message of each other. The mustard seed grows into a shrub. That's what a mustard seed does. The mustard plant is actually a shrub. But what does Jesus say it grows into? A tree. To the people who are listening to this, that would immediately be something that is abnormal to them. A mustard plant is a shrub. What does he mean? It grows into a tree. That is something that doesn't happen. The mustard seed here grew into a tree and then they have birds nesting in his branches. Again, this is teaching about Jesus' church and the evil that will continue to grow and influence the church throughout this church age. This is, this is Satan trying to actively work within the, 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 the confines of the church to try to weaken it. And even as the mustard seed grows into this abnormal tree and then the birds in this, because in the first parable that BJ did, he, he didn't really uh, um, uh, spend a lot of time on this, but in the first three, in verse four in his parable, it said, and he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And then in his explanation a little later, he explains who it is that came and snatched away that seed is the evil one. So if, he's, if it, the birds are the evil one in the first parable, more than likely it's the same identification in this parable. So these are those people who, the counterfeit Christians, the people that it may be in the church, causing disruption. I really love uh, reading history. And church history is also interesting to me, although I, I, I like reading all types of history. But you can read from the very earliest church history, beginning in Acts and in the letters of the Corinthians, and then reading through various things such as the Book of Martyrs and others uh, of, of Satan as he is in the church and trying to actively use the church and members in the church to dissuade, to uh, corrupt from the very beginning. 
Throughout the last two centuries and since Christ left, the church has struggled with false teachings. It's, it's, we've struggled with violence in the name of religion, with corruption, with immorality, with greed and other types of sins. It, it constantly comes up. Boyce wrote that many churches have become secular by conforming to the world. It's characterized by the world's wisdom, the world's theology, the world's agenda, and the world's methods. When the church becomes worldly, it may still be trying to do God's work, but it will be trying to do it in the world's way. It changes, it softens, it conforms its doctrine and message to one that doesn't confront sin and eternal judgment. A lot of people would probably like to go to churches that doesn't tell you that your behavior is wrong according to Scripture. Or there, there may not be uh, 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 hell or eternal damnation. But that would be false. That's not the truth. It might teach that salvation is, is self-esteem or wholeness instead of what it costs and what is involved in being saved. Look around at the world around us. Think of the news from different churches around the world. It's becoming harder to find a church that teaches God's Word faithfully and accurately. And I pray that we may never fall into that. A church that preaches a gospel that confronts people's sin, making them uncomfortable and driving to the, to the Savior is, is what I hope Redwood Christian Fellowship continues to be and what we might see uh, among churches of Christ. It doesn't take long for someone to realize that the mustard tree and birds and the yeast in this next parable that we uh, won't spend hardly any time at all in, that we're studying today, or speaking on the steady progression and the pervasiveness of evil in the church in this age. That's what it's dealing with. While it started small in the beginning, as the church grows larger and spreads around the world, so does Satan's attempt to corrupt and weaken his message. And, as, and we can only expect that as it gets closer, he'll become more active. So this can be depressing if you sit in here thinking, <laughs> what in the world is Jesus telling us that we have this corruption among us that we can't really do much about, that we have to wait for him to resolve, that there's going to be problems. Jesus teaches in the parables of the wheat and the tares that it will not be removed from the church until he returns and takes care of it himself. It's with us. We can't defeat it completely. But we should and we can be careful to make sure that we try to identify false teachers and prevent them from taking positions in the church or in, in uh, positions of teaching or preaching. We can take steps to help protect the body, such as when we rewrote the bylaws and the statement of faith uh, over the last few years to strengthen the language of what we believe the Bible teaches and 
how we're to function, trying to, to uh, uh, make it where it's easier for us to be able to stand up to, to the government if we get into those situations that we need to. We appoint elders and teachers who will be faithful to God's word and unafraid to teach the truth, even when it makes us uncomfortable. And it even makes us uncomfortable to have to preach on some of these things, the, the, the truths of Scripture, because we're talking about us too. This is not just about you, it's about us and me. We love and encourage each other to seek godliness, to faithfully, to be faithful to our calling and to serve the church, exercising our spiritual gifts that we have been given. That's all things that are vital for the healthy life of the local church. But we will not be able to completely remove these because these people that Satan quietly planted. But Jesus will. Again, another example of how while we want this to take place, we have to be patient because he says he'll take care of it in his timing. Satan is active, not only in the world, but in our individual lives and in our churches around the world. But God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know because he tells us that it will be accomplished that one day Satan and those who do not know him will be removed. That that will be gone. One of the ways that we do this is by following the ordinances that Jesus gave us, such as communion, which we'll be taking today. Here at Redwood Christian Fellowship, we, we do observe communion every Sunday together as a remembrance of the great work and the love that God has done for us and shown to us through sending his son Jesus who died on the cross to be the propitiation of our sins. He has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf if you have believed. But we also observe communion in anticipation of Jesus returning again someday. And we pray that it is soon, but we pray that everybody that he desires to save will be saved before he comes. Maybe that will be today. Who knows? And when he does, he'll gather the sons of the devil and they'll be punished. And if you are one of these people, we don't want you to face that punishment. We plead with you that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never confessed and repented of your sins and asked him to save you from your sins and the wrath that God has for you, we pray that you do not leave today without taking care of that. While we uh, pass out the communion as the ushers start moving forward and the worship team comes up, um, if any of you wants time of prayer, if any of you has questions about salvation, we invite you to come forward during this next song and someone will pray with you and uh, show you 
the way of salvation. While the ushers are passing out the elements, please hold them. And we'll take them together after everyone's received. And please stand for the next song.